Welcome to Rav Moshe and the Art of Psak. This is the sixth episode in our ironically titled series, Things Which Cannot Be Said at All, chronologically tracing the phrase or variants of the phrase, Lonitan Le'amir Klal, in Igris Moshe. My initial hypothesis for this series was that in, to use a phrase like, that can't be said at all, Rav Moshe must have very strong feelings about it, either about its intellectual implausibility or about the terrible consequences of saying something like that. And so we would learn a lot about what was important to Rav Moshe by his use of the phrase. This thesis did not seem to survive encounter with the facts initially, uh, because the first several episodes we discussed exchanges between Rav Moshe and his uncle Rav Kontrovitz, uh, in which they each used the phrase about each other and about things that didn't seem to matter at all. So even though in the third episode we saw it in a case where it did matter, uh, perhaps, right, the question about whether you can, it can ever be forbidden to save yourself at the expense of somebody else's property, uh, it seemed to me more likely that Ramosha had simply picked up the phrase uh, from Rav Kantrovitz and that they used it to each other in, you know, in a sort of light, uh, light-hearted extremism, I guess we would call it, that is common uh, when close friends in Torah um, argue. Um, and the hope was, though, that, um, and also I pointed out that Rav, that Rav Moshe said it and about things that were held by, great, by other great figures, so it's hard to imagine he really meant you can't say that. Um, but what I wanted to hypothesize was that this was a phrase Rav Moshe picked up in his conversation with Rabbi Kantrovitz, but that he wouldn't use it the same way with other people. When he was conversing with other people, the term would take on added significance. And that, so far, um, seems to have been borne out. Right? The first episode we dealt with with somebody other than Rabbi Kantrovitz was with a rabbi in Europe who wanted to change the chazaka that women are, uh, are uh, presumptively believed when they claim that their husbands have died, and other people, right, even, even on hearsay. Um, and Rav Moshe, right, the rabbi wanted to say, maybe that's not true anymore, maybe in, in our day, and Rav Moshe said, you can't say that at all. Uh, it wasn't clear to us whether the grounds of Rav Moshe's um, rejection were the too cavalier dismissal of a Talmudic presumption, or that the consequences would be um, an enormous increase in the number of agunot. But certainly that was an issue of importance and not used casually. And that was also a case in which we did not find anybody else uh, saying the thing or any other great figures other than his correspondent making the claims that Rav Moshe was rejecting. Uh, then in our last episode, we discussed Rabbi Yaakov Meskin's conversation with Rav Moshe. And here it wasn't the, um, there were no immediate implications of So Rabbi Meskin had suggested that the prohibition against uh, leaving sacrificial meats beyond either, uh, the, either the next day or, or the... Um, Right, either right, Lailav Yom or or, or, or Lailav and Shneiamim, um, Reskin suggested that perhaps right since the Sefer Chinuch mentions that a rationale for this is that you don't want sacrificial meat to become uh, disgusting because uh, it spoils, so maybe um, in an age of refrigeration uh, that that mitzvah would no longer apply in the same way. So, if, uh, so there are no right, there are no implications in the pre in a in a non temple era. Rav Moshe still says, right, Meskin, this can't be said at all. Uh, and his ground is a very general abstract ground. It's an objection to the use of Talmud HaMitzvot um, to change halacha. But I was very careful to, and some of those of you who have listened may have realized how I was trying to be very uh, carefully formulate the issue. Because Rav Moshe doesn't say you can't use Talmud HaMitzvot and that Talmud HaMitzvot can't affect halacha. He says you can't use Talmud HaMitzvot that don't have clear Talmudic evidence to affect halacha. Um, and I use that formulation um, because I knew 
that Rav Moshe elsewhere uses Tamei Mitzvot. And I wanted to bring one specific example uh, to your attention, um, and maybe someday we'll be zocher to do a, a fuller study of the notion of Tamei Mitzvot in Rav Moshe. In Yeridea Aleph Reish Lamed Anav Vav, Rav Moshe is in a correspondence with Rav Yitzchak Isaac Libis, Shrit Beit Av, one of the prominent poskim in the United States in the um, early mid 20th century, early to mid 20th century, uh, Shrelevis adopted a position that would allow uh, Kohanim to go to medical school. We won't, uh, we won't have to deal with it, we don't have to deal with this in detail um, right now. Um, and the way he did that was by adopting, adopting a position that would essentially allow all Kohanim to become Tame, uh, Tame mate, um, voluntarily. Uh, in a way that doesn't violate the Yisr, and then you adopt the position that once, right, uh, that once you're already Tame, there's no prohibition against becoming Tame again. So the consequence of that position is that, for practical purposes, the prohibition against Kohanim becoming Tame mate disappears. And Rav Moshe objects strongly to Rabbi Leibis' position. He rejects it utterly, although not with the words, I, I believe, Lonitan Lehe Amer because he says... You know what? That kind of argument you can make. Rabbi Libis brings a proof for Rabbi Akiva saying we have no right. We have no responsibility to make sure the institution of Zavim exists. After his position is his position on Zavim is attacked because it would eliminate the whole Isur and Ben Soramora. Because Moshe says, look, you know what? Those things, the Torah doesn't care whether they happen or not. But here, as Moshe says, when it comes to Kohanim not becoming Tamei Mace, the Torah, because of the kedusha of Kohanim, the Torah is very insistent that Kohanim not become Tamei Mace. And therefore, he says, you are wrong if you adopt a, an interpretation of the halacha which allows Kohanim to become Tamimate. So that obviously is a completely rationale-based um, claim which affects the halacha. And Rav doesn't provide us with the Talmudic evidence for his, uh, for his position, um, so we don't have clear criteria as to what he, what he, uh, what he thinks is sufficient evidence to use Tamimate's vote in halacha. Um, but I just wanted to make clear that I wasn't, you know, that when I was using the very cautious formulation, the Ramosha says you can't use Tamei HaMitzvot and Halacha, but only when those Tamei HaMitzvot are not attested um, in, uh, in, prior, in, prior, in sources prior to the Rishonim. So this distinction between Chazal and later, and later figures in terms of what they can, um, what sorts of claims they can make is characteristic of Ramosha. Um, but I wanted to be clear that he is not against Tamei Mitzvot per se, or against the influence of Tamei Mitzvot and Halacha. Uh, that would simply be an error. Back to our main thread. So, our initial hypothesis um, is going well so far. We've eliminated Rabbi Kontrovitz, and the two Truvot written to rabbis other than Rabbi Kontrovitz are both um, highly significant. But when I read the uh, Truvot that we're going to discuss today, it initially seemed that my thesis um, was going to fall apart again. This truva is also written to Rabbi Meskin, uh, six and a half years later, we're on Gimel Hanukkah 5706, and on, at first glance it seemed like the truva was of the same kind of, the Lonitana Amir Klal was said about the same kind of not practically uh, significant um, issue that, um, that he had spoken, he had said it to Rabbi Kantrovitz, and so the only choices I have is either to eliminate Rabbi Meskin also and say that last week's was, didn't matter either. It's just, Rabbi Meskin is just another person who uses his language with. And that would be fairly weak because then we, you know, we'd have to claim every time something doesn't fit. Oh, that's just another person Rabbi Moshe is close with. Not so good. Um, or else admit that Rabbi Moshe uses the phrase randomly 
And I'll have to be, I guess, much more selective in picking Shavuot in the future, and the phrase itself won't have any uh, great significance. But then I noticed something a little bit odd about uh, the, his language, and then I had a hunch, and I think in the end we'll discover that this Shuvah does teach some, uh, the use of the phrase in this Shuvah does teach us something important after all. So we're in Igris Moshe or Chaim Chelek Alef Simen Chet. This is Gimel Hanukkah Tafshin Vav. Uh, so we're in 1945 now. Rav is rabbi in Vermont. And uh, he sends uh, Shaila to Rav Moshe asking his opinion um, about the question of somebody whose left hand became completely paralyzed via machalat paralyze. I assume that means polio. Uh, what do they do in terms of tefillin? Uh, now, you look at Rav Meskin. Rav uh, Moshe says, begins by writing to Rav Meskin, he says, I saw your tshuva written in Sefer Evan Yaakov Simen Sadihei. Uh, so a person would be forgiven if they assumed that meant uh, Shut Evan Yaakov Simen Sadihei. Uh, but if you look at Shut Evan Yaakov by Rabbi Meskin, you'll discover that there is no Simen Sadihei. Um, but that's okay because it's not published till 5719. Whereas Evan Yaakov on Masechet Chagiga, which was published in 5704, does have a Simen Sadihei and it's about exactly this. Um, Rabbi Meskin says, uh, makes the following argument. A hand that is completely paralyzed is equivalent to a hand that is completely dried out. A hand that is completely dried out is non-existent. You can't put fill on a non-existent hand. Um, the only question then is whether you put it on your right hand or not. And on there, a, a Shut Ramah says that an amputee doesn't put on tefillin at all because you put fill on your Yad Keha, on your weaker hand, and if you only have one hand, you don't have a weaker hand. And therefore, Meskin Paskins, that a person who, uh, whose left hand has become completely paralyzed through polio does not put on tefillin at all. Um, Rav Moshe says, I think you're completely right that a dried-out hand is considered as if it's non-existent. But I think you're... Um, um, yeah, he says, I, I know that, there, as you quoted, there's this work by the Amudi Eish, I don't know who that is, um, who says that for the purposes of tefillin, what matters is not that it's legally non-existent, it would have to be physically non-existent, then legally non-existent but physically there, you still put tefillin on it. The Moshe says, I agree with you that the Amudah is completely wrong, but you're wrong that polio uh, is equivalent to being completely dried out. And his reasons for saying that are, completely, are very interesting. Uh, he says, first of all, my definition of a dried out is that it doesn't bleed. Um, but a hand that is paralyzed with polio, if you prick it, it does indeed bleed. It bleeds just like a healthy hand, so you can't consider it dried out. Secondly, um, he says, um, uh, And there is no um, atrophy, he says, in the hand. The only thing is you can't move the hand. Um, now, over time, of course, muscle tone... Uh, muscle tone, um, you know, atrophies and all that. But fundamentally, the hand, he says, it bleeds, right? It's still oxygenated. The hand is still alive. Uh, it's just that you can't feel anything and you can't move it. Um, and then he says, And most of the time, The cause of the illness is not in the hand at all, but rather it's the result of a disease that is in the head. And therefore, even though you can't use it, it's not considered chaser, and therefore you have to put tefillin on it like on any other left hand. So this is a really interesting claim, that polio is not a disease most of the time. Polio is not a disease of the hand, but rather is a disease of the brain. Now, I just took a quick uh, web search, and it seems that currently we believe that polio 
is fundamentally a disease of the central nervous system. Um, but it seems to me that there's no way Rav Moshe came up with this on his own. Um, he must have been told this by a doctor he trusted. The question uh, is, who is the doctor? Uh, uh, Rav Moshe Tendler, Zechron Racha, is not yet his son-in-law. is, uh, I guess, a college senior, maybe um, maybe a year past graduation, but they don't, he doesn't marry Rav Feinstein's daughter for a few years. Um, so I don't know who's feeding him. I think that uh, there was a discussion that um, on, on the, right, we had it on... Um, was it Risco de Oraisa? No. The question I had with um, Rabbi Kivilevitz about what, the, what Rav Moshe's uh, relationship to science is. This seems to me a very interesting um, example to analyze it because it's, it's pre-Rav Tendler, certainly pre-Rav Tendler as an established biologist, um, and he's plainly listening to somebody who's giving him a sophisticated uh, position that, the disease, that polio is most of the time is not a disease of the arm, but is rather a disease of the brain. Uh, I don't know if that was believed then, and he's, and he's, reported, he's repeating what was the best medical advice, whether I misunderstand the word moach, and he uses the word moach to refer to the central nervous system and not just, um, and not just to the brain. Uh, but it seems to me here we have a very early example of Rav Moshe's um, relationship to medical science uh, that's worth exploring. He says one other thing about that. He says also that in order to be considered dried up, uh, the, hand, the hand has to be permanently dried up. And it's not obvious to him that that's the case here also, because maybe it's just that we don't know how to, how to heal it now. But we don't know how to heal it now, he says, it's not, it's not the equivalent of saying that it is unhealable and therefore, um, therefore permanent. That's also an interesting position to know how he, how he relates to that in other areas of medical halacha, the possibility um, of cure um, in terms of issues like gosis and um, issues like that. Certainly worth exploring. Okay, therefore, he says, a paralytic hand is not actually dried up. And he has to put Philon on, and then he pulls out uh, one other kind of argument. Where he says, It was also paralyzed. So he said, in the end, he says, My father, uh, my father, the Tzadik, uh, was sick for the last seven months of his life, and his left hand was paralyzed, his whole left side was paralyzed, and he put filling on that left hand. So, you don't really know what motivates Rav Moshe. Um, is he textually convinced that, this is not, that, that it's really just whether it has blood in it or not? Is he um, scientifically convinced that it's a mistake because there's actually nothing wrong with the hand at all? Um, or is he loyal to family tradition, and he's not going to accept the psak that says that his father did the wrong thing. Um, okay. So in the end, right, he, he rejects Ray Meskin's um, psaq, although he accepts, the, he accepts the argument that if the hand is considered dried up, then you wouldn't put on fill-in, but he thinks you're wrong, this hand is not dried up. So if I were to ask you uh, about what would you expect Rav Moshe to say, no, that can't be said at all, you'd expect it to be about something that draws an analysis between paralysis and being dried up. Rav Moshe actually says it about a position that, if we were to accept it, would actually support his father's practice of putting tefillin on a paralyzed left hand. Um, here's what it is. Rabbi Meskin begins his truva by uh, proving that a dried-out left hand is considered non-existent. And he proves it from Rashba and Kedushan Dafchav Dalet, where the Gemara give, brings us an example of a bird that is invalid uh, as a korban, because it's a balmum, that its uh, wing has dried out, yavshagapa, and on this, the cost of arrived, afal pisha dayan mechuber begufo, 
even though the wing is still attached to the bird's body, Mechusar Eivra Mikri, it's considered to be lacking a limb, which is, which is absurd. Kevan Shekol Kocho Shel Of Bichnafav V'yavshu. V'yavshu, right? And because all the power of a bird is in its wings, and it dried out. I'm not sure why the Ravid uses the plural of V'yavshu. Rabbi Meskin focuses on the phrase, Aflopisha Dayin Mechubar Begufo, even though this dried out wing is still attached to its body. Mechusar Eivra Mikri is considered to be not there, and that's your proof that dried-out things are considered not attached. Rav Moshe says that's exactly right. But the problem is, the end of it says, Since the, all the power of a bird is in its wings, that's why it's called Mechusar Ever. So Rav Moshe says, why does it have to add in this explanation? The answer is because we're talking in the context of Kurbanos, and in the context of Kurbanos, if a bird has one feather that, or whatever, right, um, that is dried out, that would not invalidate it. It has to be something significant. So that Yavesh is considered mechusar, that's a given. The only question is whether it's an important enough thing to be missing to invalidate the animal for a korban, and that's all that the uh, Rashba quoting the Ritva is saying. But you can certainly imagine a reading which says, no, the reason that the Ravid has to add on Kevan shekol kocho shel shel ovas begapamplium. Right, that the that birds' essential life, really activity, all their force depends on their wings, is not because that proves that a wing is an aver, but because things that aren't so essential to the functioning of an animal are not considered missing if they're dried out. Right, because you don't, right, or at least they don't make the. I guess that's the way you'd have to make the argument. Um, and right, and that's. Right, and that's the case. Certainly, um, right, a, a, a paralytic hand you would put um, you would put fillin on. But Rav Moshe says that position um, is It's obvious to me that you can't say this at all. That it's um, clear that if it's dried out, it's as if it's non-existent. Uh, okay, it's not necessarily a great argument in the Rashi and Ravid, but I don't know that it's implausible. Um, and Ravmeska didn't mention it, that, that rejection at all. Ravmeska brings it in. Here's how he brings it in. He says, There were some who wished to push aside the proof from the Ravid. The language of the Ravid says, no, it's only the wings, and it's not true about other Ravarim, but this Rav Moshe says, it's obvious, in my humble opinion, this can't be said at all. So after being, for a while, um, I guess, unhappy, that it seemed like Rav Moshe was using this phrase about something that was really, um, other than the intrinsic importance of Torah, not, you know, not more central than other things, it's not even on the direct line of the tshuva, because he ends up... Um, accepting the result of this position would lead to. Uh, I noticed that it's really odd the way he introduces this. There are some people who wish to push aside. I hadn't looked at Rabbi Meskin yet, but I can tell you, there are people who want to do that, and Rabbi Meskin didn't even mention them. And since when does Rav Moshe talk about that there are some people who wish to without telling you who they are? Um, if they don't matter, why is he quoting them at all? So I wondered if there might be something else behind this issue. And what I thought about was, maybe this issue is somehow connected to the stunning controversy 
uh, which had taken place right just before World War II, uh, in which, um, and you can read about this in uh, uh, Dr. Mark Shapiro's book, um, in which Rabbi Chiel Weinberg uh, responded to the Nazi regime's uh, outlawing of Shechita without prior stunning uh, by um, sending letters around the world while you know, traveling himself around Europe, uh, trying to draw up support for the claim that the animal would be kosher, even if it had been stunned before Shechita. And even though I don't have any record of Rav Moshe being directly involved in that controversy, that could be my flaw, um, I, I wondered if that's really what was upsetting um, Rav Moshe. And so it turns out I should actually have remembered the tshuva where it came from because I talked about it in the context of one of my COVID articles. But if you look at the daf al daf, it tells you uh, uh, it tells you what the tshuva is. The tshuva is in a work by uh, in a work called the Eretz Tzvi, not the Eretz Hatzvi, but the Eretz Tzvi, by Rabbi Aryeh Fremer, who is the um, head of Mishivat uh, Chachme Lublin in the pre-war era. Um, and in addition to being published in Eretz Tzvi, it's also published in Sridei Eish, uh, where Sridei Eish collected all the replies, and he's one of the few replies that at least initially supported the psak that an animal would be kosher even if it had been stunned previously, on the grounds, among others, that although there might be a risk that stunning causes some of the limbs of the animal to be considered yevashim in a way, one of the animal, right, organs of the animal that would trafe the animal if they, were, uh, if they were missing. He says you don't have to be uh, concerned because yavesh only means uh, chaser in, with regard to the wings of a bird or other things that are analogous to it. We could talk about exactly what those organs are. It doesn't matter to me. Uh, I think that what really mattered is that Rav Moshe knew that um, that, that argument had been used in one of the few true vote defending by Weinberg's um, position that uh, shchit, that uh, sh- that shchita is kosher even after stunning, and either of Moshe had been involved in the original controversy, or he was afraid that the uh, the issue would come up again in um, in America, and so some, right. So even in the con- right, even though it's totally irrelevant in context, in the sense that Rameska ne- never even considered the possibility. Uh, Rav Moshe felt compelled to bring it up and exclude it because this issue uh, was central. So here, Lonitan Lehamer Klal turns out to be a marker of an issue of, that shows us that there's an issue that is very much on Rav Moshe's mind. Um, and he's very cautious about it. He doesn't even tell you who said it. I'm sure that he knew who said it. Uh, but he doesn't even tell you who said it because he so much wants to exclude this uh, from the discourse. Um, so that is a really, uh, I think that that uh, turns out that this Shiva is uh, really good evidence that the phrase uh, really does tell you what Rav Moshe really cares about, and being sensitive to it uh, tells us something about right, the context of this shuva that we would never um, have known. Uh, we don't, again, I don't know of any other record in which Rav Moshe is engaged in the pre-Shchita stunning controversy. He has a shuva about uh, post-Shchita stunning, um, but it seems from here likely that Rav Moshe was involved at the time, uh, and certainly cared about it, and perhaps that will tell us that when we see this phrase in other Chuvot, uh, we should also be looking for historical context, and that the phrase doesn't necessarily mean that Ramosh is engaged in purely intellectual conviction. It might be that Lonitan Lehemir Klal sometimes means that this cannot be allowed to be part of the halachic process because its implications are too dangerous. Thank you for listening.